This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Gundeep Alawalia, the Chief Information Officer at the Labor Department, and Michelle Evermore, the Deputy Director for Policy in the Office of Unemployment Insurance Modernization, also at the Labor Department. Michelle Gundeep, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you, Jason. Good to be here. We're talking about the modernization effort that labor has gone down, started going down the path of unemployment insurance. And, and this is a huge challenge. I, I remember hearing maybe over the summer about the challenges that labor was having and, and really trying to fight back the fraud that was, was potentially happening within the unemployment insurance modernization effort based on the CARES Act and other things. So let's maybe start at the beginning and maybe Gundeep start us off. The current state of technology for the unemployment insurance program how old are the systems? What's the, what shape is that technology in today? First of all, I want to start by acknowledging a, a great amount of work uh, that happened both in the states, at the Labor Department, and across the board to work against the huge tsunami uh, that the pandemic brought on us, right? The unemployment insurance uh, uh, had never seen numbers of this, of this kind in the past, right? So I have a lot of respect for uh, the unemployment insurance program folks, the IT folks who who were able to cater to or or help with servicing all the unemployment claims, right? So that's that's out out of the game. With regards to the the state of play across the states, I think it, it is it varies vastly from uh, you know among the states, and also it also varies vastly in terms of the different parts of the ecosystem, right? So it is the claim submission pieces, the call center, the claim adjudication, uh, certification process, ability to to do all of these things have different components and they all are in varying states in different different states. I I also would would like to point out that modernization or a modern system, right, is is something that we must, uh, has different definitions for different people. And I'll, I'll request Michelle to sort of expand on, uh, on that a little bit. But I will say that across the states, uh, there is a, a vast array of, of where these systems and their capabilities live at this point in time. We've come a long way during the pandemic, uh, but there is a long way to go as well. Michelle, can you expand a little bit on the modernization and where we are since uh, uh, you have a, a pretty good handle on this? I think that a lot of times when people say modernized, uh, you know, they look at that as being, uh, you know, sort of a specific thing and it's not often cited is the statistic that, you know, 18 states have modernized. And and so then all of a sudden those systems are, are, are perfect and ready to go. And all the states that haven't modernized are broken and cannot possibly handle um, handle any any sort of challenge. When in reality, you know, there there are modernized systems that are modernized to various degrees. Some modernized systems really struggled, while other quote-unquote non-modernized systems, systems that are still on COBOL, did very creative things to push through a lot of claimants. The other thing I just flag is, you know, it's it's been very difficult for states to come up with funding to modernize on their own. That also has, has been a challenge uh, across states. I think one thing to Michelle, if you could kind of talk a little bit about it, it's clear that what labor is doing is not modernizing a system. It's it's helping 
states modernize their systems that then tag back to the Labor Department or have some kind of integration with Labor Department. But there's not one system, right? No, we still have to recognize that there are 53 state systems that all require a great deal of customization because their laws are all different. What the Labor Department is doing, there's basically two tracks of activity that are dealing directly with uh, tech. One is the sort of immediate deployments to states to help them uh, sort through their backlogs, promote equity in the system, and um, fight fraud. So there's that immediate hands-on effort that's going to try and find easy fixes within the, the fastest fixes within the systems to push claims through. We are doing something along the lines of modernization by developing modules for states. And we're going to, we are going to work on um, centrally developed technology modules that can be deployed into state systems. But, you know, one thing we've learned from uh, for example, healthcare.gov, is if you try to build one big thing all at once um, and deploy it all on the same day, it's definitely not going to work. And that, that that would be multiplied by 53 if we tried to uh, modernize all state systems uh, on a federal level. Interesting connection back to healthcare.gov. The, the challenge of, of meeting everyone's needs at once is, as we've learned over the years, it just it doesn't necessarily work well. So let's start with that immediate effort, uh, the, the track one that you mentioned, deployment to states, sort out backlogs, promote equity, fight fraud. What's What are some of those first initial steps uh, or, or the steps that labor has been taking over the last few months? So, so far, we have deployed six teams to six states. We're calling them tiger teams. And they are there to sort of identify process flow issues and then help to figure out how to maybe automate some solutions or collaborate with people who can help provide solutions. So those are in place in, in, in um, six states. And on those teams, we have tech experts. We have process flow experts, equity experts, fraud experts, and of course, unemployment insurance subject matter experts who can sort out the rules. And then they all report back to a central backbone that that will be federal employees. And uh, that team mirrors those teams in the field so that when we find a solution in one state, um, they can communicate that to the central team. And the central team can then, when we recognize the same problem in another state, in another set of deployments, we can just pass that solution on to the next state. Uh, and, and that's really the key here is, is everyone has similar problems, but no one's the same. But if you can get the 80% solution, the, the, the 85% solution, then you can start kind of really get, making some progress very quickly. Gundeep, from, from your perspective, how are you supporting this effort on, 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 from a labor, internal labor perspective? Are, are you providing what types of services? Did you provide some of these folks on the Tiger team? W- what's your role? During the pandemic, we helped uh, many of the states at that time with tactical help, right? But but that stage is gone. Now we are partnering with OUIM, uh, Michelle, her teams, the Tiger team, the Central team. A couple of things we've done. We are partnering with USDS. And Michelle talked about the initial modular designed uh, pieces of software so the first piece is we have decided to do what we call as the claimant experience pilot, right? So one of, one of the things that, that is happening is around claimant experience. This is very tough. It's cumbersome. It's complex. So there is a focus, and we will be partnering with a few states to pilot that, learn from it, and try and come up with a module that hopefully can scale over time. And, and then it sort of uplifts the user experience or the claimant experience uh, across the board. 
The other thing that we've been involved in heavily is providing ID contract that we have done with various service providers. And we are now working with states so that they can implement AAL2 and IAL2, which is the NIST standard recommended solutions to prevent and catch fraud while not affecting equity uh, adversely, right? So the, the goal is we're trying to help uh, uh, states through that contract vehicle, which is a which has been awarded, and now we are hopefully going to put task orders. Uh, we will also leverage that capability for this claimant experience pilot that I talked about uh, with the uh, United States Dig- Digital Service. Michelle, the other piece of this, and, and you mentioned uh, six teams, six states. Are you able to tell me which states are, are among the first ones? And are those teams mostly U.S. digital service folks? Are they a combination of, of feds that you reached out to, contractors? How are they put together? The USDS work is the long-term sort of building of components that, that states can ingest over time. And so the Tiger teams are sort of a different effort, although we do make sure that there's a lot of communication across those streams. And the, the Tiger teams are actually staffed by uh, Grant Thornton on the state level. But the other piece of this is this is something that you are project managing, right? Those Tiger teams are coming in to those states that are working based on the needs that they've ex- expressed, the things you've seen from the Labor Department, and, and that's that's really where those expert, that expertise is coming from. So it's contractor-based, but based on a combination of, of, of factors. That's right. That's right. And I also would be remiss to leave out the, the the important input that we're getting from the National Association of State Workforce Agencies. They've been helping us a lot. They've, they've already been engaged in a lot of assistance work uh, across states, especially prior to the pandemic. So we obviously can't ignore the things that they've learned and the tremendous uh, expertise they bring to the table. Gunjeet, Michelle, on that note, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can continue our conversation. My guests today are Michelle Evermore, the Deputy Director for Policy in the Office of Unemployment Insurance Modernization, and Gundeep Alawalia, the CIO at the Labor Department. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Gundeep Alawalia, the Labor Department's Chief Information Officer, and Michelle Evermore, the Deputy Director for Policy in the Office of Unemployment Insurance Modernization. The ID management piece, let's go down there maybe for, for a little bit, because I think that's a key factor. I talked a little bit about the claimant experience pilot. So what we will try and do is utilize in that central module that USDS and OCIO are developing, right? to test as to how this claimant experience would work along with a ID verification that prevents uh, most of the, of the fraud upfront, right? So there is a preventative kind of an effect of implementing IAL2. But I think we are also acutely aware that this should not impact equity or timeliness of the claimant experience, right? So we will be working hard to integrate and utilize the services of ID providers to do that. Login.gov is a, has been a long-term partner for the Department of Labor, right? On uh, many of our projects, like the Foreign Labor Certificate Gateway, our flag uh, application already relies heavily on, uh, uh, and many other applications within labor. So we intend to leverage that continued partnership in the longer term, what exact shape it will take and how we will 
bring it into either the claimant experience or offer it to the states. We are obviously in, in, in conversations with login.gov and that sort of uh, has to be informed by the pilots and what we learn uh, during these claimant experience pilots uh, with the states as well. Uh, but absolutely, this is a part of the, the solution mix that we are looking at. Fortunately, we have multiple options now, and we intend to use uh, them and in, 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 in learn from there. Michelle? One aside about fraud and the unemployment insurance system is that fraud isn't happening because of unemployment insurance, right? Um, this is a whole of government problem. By and large, the way that uh, fraudsters are getting in is not by hacking state systems. They're they're using stolen identities that were you know uh, gained in other breaches, um, and so it's really important to note, uh, particularly for this audience, that that this is this is a, a problem that you know will come to other programs, and we need a whole of government response to it. Absolutely right. And, and we've talked about improper payments for 20 years, it feels like, and probably more. And, and that's what we're really talking about. We're not talking about fraud. There's improper payments, is, and, and there's a lot bigger bucket when we talk about that. But I, I think uh, the reason why I brought up the fraud issue is only because you saw a lot of um, discussion from Congress, from IGs and the like over the last six or nine months. And, and I know that was one of the, the things you all definitely have been spending time to, to, to look at and to improve upon. That takes us a good segue to the money that the Labor Department received from the American Rescue Plan Act, uh, something around $2 billion. Uh, a lot of that money, I imagine, is going through to these Tiger teams, to these these capabilities. Give me a sense of, of how much, not just how much you're spending, but but what, what that money is being used for. And then what does fiscal 2022 and beyond look like from, a, from both a cost and a priority perspective? Some of this is going to be iterative budgeting. We're starting to spend money on some projects, and we'll see how which ones work the best. And that will be where we uh, shift our focus in the future. Some of it has gone to Tiger teams. So what what has already gone out the door is $140 million in fraud grants and $260 million in equity grants. And that when I say that's gone out the door, it's been allocated. The other thing that we're working on is in conjunction with the Tiger team assistance, we will soon have a UI program letter that details another an additional 200 million for states to be able to use to apply the recommendations that the tiger teams come up with from there you know the the money has not been you know allocated but we are expecting a very large sum of it to end up applying to the the, the centralized modular systems and just to be clear on the centralized modular systems these will come from the pilots the tiger teams oh, this worked, this was a common problem, now we have it for everyone to use. And now, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, that some of that money can then be uh, grants <laughs> given to, provided to, however you, what terminology is perfect, uh, to states to, to implement the module, right? Yeah, so so the, the $200 million will not necessarily be to implement the IT module, but to implement whatever process improvements that the Tiger team comes up with. And that might be something like making sure that the website is disability accessible. It might be hiring more call center folks or something like that, right, um, to, to, to handle a particular problem. But that's going to end up um, being part of the, the Tiger team recommendations. And, and really, the, I was going to say, and yeah. really the improving the process, which is what your end goal is. The modernization, to be clear, doesn't have to be a technology modernization. A modernization can mean many things. And we, we like to talk about tech, but we know that there's a 
business process reengineering. There's people, as you said, too, right? Exactly. Some of this is just figuring out how to move claims through, and it, it could definitely involve a, a personnel process or hiring a, a consultant for, for various purposes. It could, it could involve in a number of things. Michelle, I want to talk, the other piece of this is you, you mentioned kind of the, the, the two-pronged approach. Uh, you mentioned the, the first one, obviously, is the, the Tiger teams and, and going forward there. The second piece, obviously, these modules can you walk through a little bit what the modules look like or, or what they're initially looking at to, to see if this would be helpful, if this is a, a – are there common problems that they're trying to solve across the states or across the country? So right now we're definitely in the research phase of you know asking states, first of all, where are you in your modernization process? What are the things that we could build that would help the most states? Lay out for us what your actual problems are, and we can figure out which modules might be helpful. Is it that you uh, need a login help? Is it that is it that maybe you want um, a, a technology to uh, provide short time compensation, work sharing benefits? Um, some a, a lot of those systems are still on paper. We're still in the phase of asking states what the questions. What, what the, the the right questions about what services and technology they need, and from there we will build pilots and hopefully scalable pilots, but we'll build them with a couple of willing partners first and then um, deploy them in other states as, as we find out that they work. How long is the research phase? Do you expect to have some of these kind of initial pilots later, early 2022, mid 2022? Do you have a sense yet? The first claimant experience pilot, we are working already. We are, we are working with talking to multiple states. Hopefully we will make a selection soon. We hope to get something out there next calendar year, uh, right? Uh, early first quarter of that calendar year. But as we are doing that, we are also trying to identify what other pilots make sense, like uh, Michelle said. Uh, I don't want to time box the research because I, I almost feel like you have to learn from each pilot. And as you are doing that, there will be other pilots that will emerge, Right. But certainly, I think there is a propensity. We've heard from various states that a claimant experience pilot where with some level of central ID verification is, a, is something that they, they are looking for. So that, that one is clear. The others, I think, are more in the research. And I do not want to time box as to what the, that research phase is going to be. I would certainly expect more pilots during 2022. Gondeep, I want to follow up on that in the sense of labor has gone through a transformation in and of itself. Are there some lessons you're learning that you've learned over the last few years that now you are applying to this effort? Because as Michelle and you've said, this is not one size fits all. This is not a one big bang. And just like labor has multiple bureaus that are all have different kind of needs, there's some similarities, but they're not all the same. So uh, absolutely, uh, Jason. I think the running a a modernization strategy with the diversity of mission uh, that labor has, from protecting people's four hundred one k's to work, writing workman compensation claims to running apprenticeship programs, that kind of diversity has a lot of complexity. And we've been able to choreograph a strategy and execute it to it over the last few years. The lessons from that are, uh, obviously, the, the state-run UI system is probably as complex or more, I would say, right? So the idea is, one, 
not to treat it only as a technological modernization, right? It, it is business process. It is a fundamental policy uh, uh, fixes. It is us uh, people uh, associated with it. So a lot of that has to go together in order to reform or modernize uh, this ecosystem. The other thing is uh, it is complex. Take it one small step at a time, test the hypothesis, run pilots, and implement and scale things that work rather than trying to do boil the ocean in one go and then realize that it is not successful, right? So managing that risk is something that we've done in our labor portfolio in the past. And I think is a great learning. I'm, I am uh, also very excited that there's a lot of talent in OUIM as well as the states, right? That have come to the table. USDS is a great partner here as well. We should have a great ability to, to help the states in, in building this resilience in the UI systems. There's also this need to fix the system today. And, and I think that there's a little bit of an urgency factor here, given what we saw during the pandemic over the last 18 months. How do you balance that urgency with the need, as Deep said, this is complex, we need to test, we need to then figure out if it works and then scale and then, then move out? I mean, this, you know, a lot of people concerned that this can be a three to five year modernization effort when you have an urgency that says you need to fix certain things like the claimant experience uh, as, as one example today. How do you, how do you achieve that balance? I don't know if Michelle or Gundeep, who's better for that one. There was a initial, when the pandemic happened, like last year, we tried to help a lot of states. Right? Some states didn't have even laptops. So they went into a complete remote structure and we partnered with them and did the best we can. Some states needed BB2 uh, tuning, uh, uh, Adobe forms, and, and all of that happened. But I think we've, we've, we've gone past that, you know, that barrage. And I think the states have found uh, a way to, to cater to the, the increased load at this point in time. I think the Tiger teams and other efforts are going to continue to partner with the states to find those tactical opportunities. We will happily engage where needed, but I think the focus also has to be building this long-term resilience, building this plan and running the marathon and, and, and sort of not looking at the sprints, right? There are so many sprints that have to happen, but then uh, it is the marathon that we need to begin because it, it is 26 miles. We better and we are in mile two. The other thing that I would add is really that, you know, modernization, as, as you pointed out earlier, is, is a lot, about a lot more than tech. And so in order for the tech and the policy and the administration and the business practices to all come along together is going to be difficult. But I think, you know, all of this should layer onto a, more, a, a better, more resilient underlying unemployment insurance system. And, and you know, ideally, the, the unemployment system can be made to scale automatically during times of recession. I mean, some, some of that definitely requires legislative fixes as well. So th- there's, there's a lot that goes into this. What's the message from both when you outside looking in, meaning people who are going, why can't they go faster or, or get this done or, or what changes are coming? And then inside looking out, meaning from a labor department perspective, there's a lot of things you all are doing that maybe people people don't notice or don't quite understand the, the, the difference that you are making. What's that, I guess, broad-based message you'd want to leave? 
it's amazing what states have done and, and it's amazing what has happened over the course of the last year. The first week in March, when the family's first coronavirus assistance bill passed with a million dollars increase in, in um, administrative funding for states, there was a requirement that unemployment increased by at least 10% before states can get that funding. At that time, there was actually concern that not all states would have that 10% increase as a result of the coronavirus. And then what happened is um, we went from a couple hundred thousand claims a week to 6.6 million by the end of the month. And states were processing more than a million claims every single week for a, over a year. The highest in history was uh, 395,000 or 695,000 in October of 1982. Um, that's, that's just saying a lot. And, and during that time, states had to stand up three massive new benefit expansions um, in a month. Ordinarily, a tiny change in unemployment insurance requires two years for implementation. States did this all within a, a month. So obviously, there were going to be problems. Things were going to break. There's, there's no way around that. This was just such an exponential challenge for states. And yet, they rose to meet it. And they will rise to meet these new challenges. And they will they will rise to meet uh, the, 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 the demand of the future and, and this, this massive change that we're, that, that's going to have to happen so that next time there's an economic emergency, they're able to take care of it. All right. Very nice. Um, this was a great conversation, and I do very much appreciate it. I learned a lot. So let me thank my guest. Uh, Gundeep Alawalia is the CIO at the Labor Department. Gundeep, always a pleasure to talk to you. Same here, Jason. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. And Michelle Evermore is the Deputy Director for Policy in the Office of Unemployment Insurance Modernization. Michelle, thanks so much for taking the time as well. Thank you. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. For these next two segments of the show, I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I moderated recently on Zero Trust, sponsored by ATARC. The guests on that panel were John Sims, the Deputy Branch Chief of the Cybersecurity Assurance Branch of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at the Homeland Security Department, and Bill Wright, the Senior Director for North American Government Affairs at Splunk. First, we hear from John Sims of CISA. You know, over the last couple of months, we've been, you know, working on uh, the public comment adjudication on the Cloud Security TRA uh, that was uh, deliverable uh, for the Executive Order 14028 as well as uh, we're reviewing the comments on our zero trust maturity model, which is a maturity model that uh, was principally led by myself and Sean Connolly, uh, the TIC program manager to help facilitate um, the zero trust plans that were due within 60 days of the release of the executive order. Uh, in addition to that, you know, as part of the aftermath, you know, 90 days is a quick spin for developing uh, a lot of these deliverables and, and really we had to double back a little bit and kind of reset some expectations in terms of what zero trust really means uh, to the federal community but also to our agency in particular as we start looking at uh, you know changing how we do business to help support zero trust because it is very different it's it's really about looking at how you move you move security away from the network and, and move it closer to the data and support the application. And I think that, you know, when we look at cloud and we look at, you know, how, how we're going to facilitate zero trust uh, into the future under zero, you know, under zero trust architecture and principles, we've got to fundamentally shift our, our thinking away from 
that network centric uh, uh, base of cybersecurity and visibility and look at how we can support it in a in a uh, risk uh, risk based um, you know approach. You mentioned the OPM data breach. Um, I think that's an excellent way to kind of set you know set some expectations with regard to we really need to focus zero trust where it really is going to help us uh, change the dynamic in federal cybersecurity. And you talk about OPM, that was also the lead incident that allowed us to start the HVA program. And so from my perspective, as someone who's been involved in CDM, involved in uh, you know managing the HVA program, I definitely agree that we've got to look at zero trust as, as a mechanism by which we uh, fundamentally shift the architectures for HVAs. Uh, lastly, I'll just say that uh, one of the other uh, important things that we've been doing is working with uh, an agent, agency on looking at how zero trust maps to 853, because I think there's a pretty significant delta there when we talk about it uh, in terms of like what that mapping looks like and how the IGs are going to uh, assess and evaluate the agencies uh, as they do annually for the FISMA report. Over to you, Jason. All right, a couple of quick follow-ups there. But first, we're going to get to our first poll of the day. We have a couple of them today. So uh, if folks from HR want wants to put up that first poll, there it is. And while everyone's answering it, uh, let's, uh, let me ask you a quick follow-up, uh, John. Um, you, the la- I was going to go back to asking about how the move to Zero Trust maybe had, had you had CISA relook at things. But instead, I'm going to ask about something else, because the last thing you said about the 853 effort is really interesting. And I think that's been one of the biggest challenges that I've seen over the years is matching up agencies' risk-based approach to 853. Can you just maybe give us a little more about what you're looking at, how, how that matching up is working, and, and where do the IGs fit into this conversation? Are, are they this discussion already? Are you going to present them something? What's kind of the longer-term vision? Yeah, I think that, Jason, that's a great question. I think that right now we're in the very early stages of, of how, how we're going to step through this. Um, this was brought to our attention um, uh, by a former colleague who's, who's working back in uh, one, of, one of the agencies. And, and as she was looking at how to support her Zero Trust project and make sure that the, um, the 853 and the risk management framework is supportive of that shift, she identified that there were some gaps in terms of what, like how you translate the zero trust capabilities to um, the, the various levels of security controls in the security baseline of 853. So, you know, we've talked about it with the um, uh, uh, zero trust interagency uh, working group under uh, the federal CIO council. And we're, we are talking with NIST about how we step through this. Once we kind of get a better understanding of, of what that delta really looks like, I definitely think that it's going to be extremely important for us to uh, find a, an appropriate venue to bring the IG, the SIGI working group in and, and talk to them about how we, how we deal with this. Because unfortunately, as, as we all know, the agencies, uh, you know, when they, when they hear the IG say something about how things are going with FISMA, they really pay attention. If, we, if, if we're in a position to help influence that in a positive way, it's absolutely critical that we do so. Yeah, but what are you seeing from your clients? What, what's happening on Zero Trust that you're seeing across government? Yeah, a couple of points I wanted to start uh, with, with Jason here. You know, I, Despite what you may hear, there, there is no single vendor uh, that can sell a complete Zero Trust solution. Um, that's because it's not a single technology. You know, It's a framework. 
uh, a framework made up of, of interlocking technical and business architectures. So I think the best zero trust approaches you're gonna see are gonna be the ones that include those programmatic organizational changes, uh, incorporating technology, policy, and even culture as I think. And for the federal government, uh, it means there's gonna be a challenge. I've been Sam working with Duke's many partners, uh, both public and private, um, obviously, uh, John there at CISA, um, agencies that are further along, I think, in this zero trust process are going to partner with those that are getting started, uh, exchanging that information, those playbooks, potentially even staff. And then on the funding side, those acquisition, uh, those agency acquisition officers are going to need to really be closely knitted with the uh, IT and security leadership to build out and most importantly, sustain those zero trust capabilities, I think. Uh, going forward. Um, and for us in industry, I think we're going to also have some challenges um, that we're seeing. Um, not only is it crucial for government and industry to, to, to partner closely um, like we're doing, um, but it's going to become increasingly important, I think, for vendors to begin working together uh, to work collectively you know, to help these agencies create a more uh, seamless zero trust environment. Um, you know, we as trusted uh, vendors uh, we'll need to play well together. And of course, our technologies are going to need to be tightly integrated. Um, you know, I'm proud to say it's Splunk. We've already been doing this with a number of big vendor partners across the, uh, the zero trust uh, ecosystem. Um, another potential challenge, I think, for, for agencies um, that isn't talked about a lot is this cultural shift. Um, this isn't something that uh, I've heard too much about. Um, there are a lot of aspects uh, to zero trust that are I think probably come across counterintuitive to IT teams um, that have trained on, on decades of, of perimeter-oriented defense in-depth strategies. Uh, zero trust is going to require a change of mindset from defending that perimeter to still defending that perimeter, but also assuming breach and, and defending within. Um, in other words, you're, you're not only trying to keep the barbarians out of your castle, you're protecting the treasure from attackers who have already infiltrated. Um, and this is a fundamental mind shift that's not going to be overcome overnight. Um, on a positive note, I think there's a lot of zero trust um, um, where IT teams, uh, teams will be much more familiar. Um, they've long been responsible for identifying the crown jewels or the HVAs. Uh, this is something John just mentioned with respect to OPM. Uh, the concept of zero trust, of course, and risk management relies heavily on knowing what matters and what doesn't. Uh, and you can't treat everything the same. Um, and this will change depending on the agency's uh, mission. Uh, compliance, of course, can't be a peanut butter spread. Can't add the same compliance levels across the board. There just simply aren't enough resources. And then I'm sure we'll touch on this a little bit later, but really wanted to underscore the importance of and what we're hearing from, from our, our, our agency partners around automation and the importance to zero trust strategy. It's all about speed. If users find zero trust, cumbersome, they find friction, if it's slow, they will find workarounds. That is human nature. Uh, but that, of course, undermines the, the fundamental goal of, of protecting around zero trust. Um, but security and speed aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, and there, of course, are tools out there to uh, assist. Looking forward to diving into those a little bit more and, and looking forward to the discussion. Thanks a lot, Jason. We talk about the culture shift a lot. And, you know, I think it kind of gets it's it's both overplayed and underplayed in the when we talk technology. We always know it's a culture shift. It's never the technology. We've heard that. I don't know. I've been doing this twenty some years. So it feels like uh, it's the same old, same old. What? Why is zero trust, or what has to happen to make zero trust 
that culture shift you want it to, or, or that, that you want to, what has to shift within the culture? Can, can you, have you guys looked at it? Have you guys seen it? Has Splunk yeah, I, mean, with I, their you know, I think in order to enact that kind of culture shift and, and again, sort of decades of, of training on sort of, of protecting the perimeter, you're going to need leadership and you're going to need sustained, uh, sustained leadership on that. So, you know, making sure that it is not just an IT or a security issue, but that everyone is moving uh, in concert with each other uh, to implement this, uh, you know, to implement this zero trust. You know, I saw the poll earlier um, that said the, the, the toughest part about all of this is where to begin. Um, you know, that's a that's an area where I think uh, leadership and culture shift can all come into play. Um, some of the documents that um, that, that has, has, um, you know, has has put out along with the OMB guidance, I think is absolutely essential uh, in answering that question on where to start. I think it's a very, very practical guide, in particular, the, uh, the Zero Trust Maturity Model. Um, I think it's a fantastic document that really gives you that roadmap on, on how to start and, and what it looks like to have sort of an optimal state. Let's take a quick break. Today, I'm playing an excerpt of a panel I moderated recently on Zero Trust, sponsored by ATARC. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. For this segment of the show, I continue to play an excerpt of a panel I moderated recently on Zero Trust, sponsored by ATARC. My guests on that panel were John Sims, the Deputy Branch Chief of the Cybersecurity Assurance Branch of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at DHS, and Bill Wright, the Senior Director of North America Government Affairs at Splunk. Uh, John, let me get you to weigh in a little bit on, on this culture change issue, because part of the reason why I think CISA has been very aggressive of getting these guidance out, these playbooks out, is to help move that culture. What are you seeing? How, how is CISA kind of trying to address that culture challenge? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. I, th- I think that the, the culture, um, you know, change that, that's, that, that's out there right now is, is I think solar winds was really a, a big wake-up call for everyone um, to see how far the adversary got into the infrastructure of a lot of um, agency cloud environments, a lot of uh, private sector cloud environments. I think that, that that just, even us in the cybersecurity realm, we're just like, it was a oh my god moment, and so I think that I think that was a that was a, a, an impeccable opportunity post solar winds for us to really look at at what we've been doing for the past twenty years and and looking at why it didn't succeed in terms of like that perimeter security uh, architecture um, s- setting us up. You know, we always talk about you know defense in depth, but I think we're also looking at. Uh, you know, this has been set out in the, in the private sector as well, expense in depth. And I think we've got to, we've got to really pare down, um, you know, and this speaks directly to the culture and leadership. We've got to pare down what we're spending on IT and really focus on those things that matter and adjust the risk management uh, approach in terms of like how we apply architecture and capabilities across the enterprise to support the varying degrees of, of risk that, that we can absorb or manage within the within a given agency network, and so I, I think that's that's like a huge part of of what we need to continue to advocate for. But that's that's to me is a significant uh, element of the culture. We have some questions coming in from the audience, so let's get to them. And don't forget, audience, please continue to send in your questions. The the first one comes from Niall. They write, if we have disparate legacy systems with separate login credentials and data structures, 
is there a case to grow it system by system or is it often the case that if things don't support single sign-on simply they need to be replaced to support zero trust you know my response to the question is is, is yes that 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 legacy application uh, or legacy system is is ripe for uh, modernization. Um, you know, every agency has the, that mainframe sitting in the corner of the data center, uh, containing the blink lights. You know, and, and as long as they're green and flashing, you know, and and no one's complaining, then, then it usually doesn't get attention. But but I can tell you that um, you know from my own experience at, at several agencies that. You know, that's not a good way to be proactive with cybersecurity. What we see with legacy uh, systems and, and what, what we call technical debt is that, you know, there's been a disconnect between that three to five year IT life cycle that's, that's holistic to include the, the programming, uh, planning, budgeting and execution to make sure that those systems are, are properly maintained with um, uh, current software and current code. Um, I, I would suggest that uh, in those cases, I think that speaks directly to what the TMF is for, and agencies should should look at that as an opportunity to identify those those significant and heavy lifts that are going to be expensive to seed the money uh, to get the seed money rather to uh, modernize their their em- environments, especially their application infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And, and we know several agencies have started that process we know opm we know gsa among two that come to mind that have started to kind of grab that tmf money or got got approval for tmf money of course john as you know there's more need than there is money so there's got to be other ways which is actually i think where sisa comes in too and because i want to talk to you about that a little bit because you mentioned earlier about how you had to maybe relook at the way because of these 90 day and 60 day deliverables how sisa is approaching the zero trust you know, security and moving uh, security closer to data and support apps. How has CISA been changing and, and really been relooking at the way you provide services or at least you help agencies over the last three, four, five months? I think that we're still in the very early stages of that conversation. We know that CDM was called out in the executive order that, you know, we need to modernize and, and make sure that the program keeps pace with not only cloud, but modernized, modern, modern hosting environments. CDM's looking to push out the EDR solution capability, you know, within this next fiscal year, I believe. And, you know, that's going to fundamentally change the way that that program has, has operated as a capability, a set of capabilities that are leaning forward. That's all the time we have for today. You just heard an excerpt of a panel I moderated recently on Zero Trust, sponsored by ATARC. My guests on that panel were John Sims, the Deputy Branch Chief of the Cybersecurity Assurance Branch of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at DHS, and Bill Wright, the Senior Director of North America Government Affairs at Splunk. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.